as you find your way to Matthew chapter 28, I hope to give you maybe a little bit of a recap of where we've been in this season of Easter that we celebrate together, that Jesus is alive, not just one day, one week, a year, but Jesus is alive and we live accordingly all the time. So we began last week celebrating Easter in the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 28. And Matthew's account of Jesus coming to life and the way and the miraculous way in which he revealed himself to his followers absurdly and miraculously and blindingly even for some of the guards that were there. And we saw some really cool things going on there. So for you see the, the contrast of power between the power of Jesus and the power of God and, and the power of human beings. And you saw that illustrated in the power of Pilate. The power of Pilate ultimately subjected to the approval of people. And his power that he thought he had was ultimately subject to the approval of the people. And he was willing to make any deal he could, either with the public to have Jesus crucified or, or with some rich man to allow Jesus' body to be buried in his tomb. And then a deal to, to make with even the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the elders and the Jewish council, so that they could guard that, that tomb just in the off chance that Jesus might either actually disappear and his body might disappear from the grave and be stolen, or he might actually come back to life. But you also see that there's this stunning and, and amazing thing that God does coming to bringing Jesus to life. And so we want to read that together, Matthew chapter 28. We're reading the whole verse, excuse me, the whole chapter, verse 1, all the way through verse 20 together. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you now. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I pray that we not only read God's Word, but it actually begins to read us. And I hope that we not only expose what is in God's Word, but it begins to expose what's in us. So you saw where we spent our time last week in the first ten verses about Jesus appearing to His people. Stunningly, shockingly, and even the angel that rolled away the tomb scared these people at least, I don't know if I could say half to death, but at least to the appearance of death. And we saw last week that Jesus, now that He is alive, demands things of us. And now that we see Jesus alive, now that you and I watch Jesus living and active among us, we have the same call upon us as the angels spread to these women that saw Jesus alive. First and foremost, that our subjective reaction to the world is now ultimately under the Lordship of Christ. So He says multiple times, have no fear, do not fear. He says, emotionally, the way we feel, the way we respond to the world is different now that we know Christ is alive. We respond to things differently, but we also know different. We think differently. Yes, death is coming for all of us. Do all the supplements, CrossFit, weightlifting marathons you want, death is on its way, right? None of us cheats it. In fact, Jesus set the example of this. I love this. Jesus didn't defeat death by outrunning death, right? Jesus didn't defeat death by cheating death or avoiding death. But thanks be to God, Jesus defeated death by taking the full marks and curse and penalty of death in his own body. And then he walked out unscathed, alive, three days later. So what we know about the world is radically different now. The way we value things and the way that we invest in this world is different now that we know that death has been defeated. And Jesus demonstrates for us this power over the last thing that's lording over us. That is death. But also it changes the way we live. And we'll see that exposed even more so. This, this is unfolded even more in the verses today. That Jesus is alive. And so the angel says to those women, first and foremost, come and see. But then the angel says to them, now go and tell. And so for us to get really what's going on in this chapter, for us to to not miss what Matthew wants us to know here in this chapter, I think you see a couple of different things. At least three different sections here. The first one we talked about last week. The revelation of Jesus as living and active, going in and out as He pleases in the presence of His followers. But the second two things are the two possible ways in which we respond. Jesus is alive, and the response to this takes two forms according to Matthew. One of those response, one of those responses is keeping it a secret because it seems more profitable. And the other one is to follow Jesus' commands to take that message to the world. So Jesus is alive. We talked about this in the first 10 verses. Jesus is alive. He appears to them, and the responses seem to be twofold for Matthew. 
One in which involves keeping it a secret because it's more profitable, and the other one involves sharing it with the ends of the earth because Jesus has authority. For Matthew, evangelism, sharing of the good news, telling this good news that Jesus is alive, he has suffered in our place and now is victorious over all things that were lorded over us. This good news and our responsibility to tell it because some things are too good to keep a secret is deeply rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. They're all lumped here together. And Matthew is no stranger to writing long chapters, 50, 60 verses. And then all of a sudden there's this concise chapter in which Matthew tells us Jesus is alive. Some people knew it, knew something happened, but it was more profitable for them to stay quiet. And the other people went from being afraid scared guys trying to save their own lives to bold and brave messengers even at the risk of their own lives. And the response is deeply rooted in how we experience Jesus as alive. For Matthew, sharing of this is deeply connected to the resurrection. Seeing Jesus alive and then going and telling people about Jesus are deeply connected right here in this chapter. And we see at the very end a command that Christians speak a great deal about. We'll go into further detail about this, but I'll just beat you to the punch here. Yes, if you would come into this room and you find yourself maybe a little skeptical, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, first and foremost, be encouraged, you're in good company. I don't know if you caught that, but there was a group of people, some of them believed and worshipped Jesus as soon as they saw, but then as soon as they saw him also, it seems that some of them, even after seeing Jesus alive, they resisted, They, they hesitated, they doubted. So you're in good company if you find yourself with a little bit of hesitation about this Jesus. If you have a little bit of doubt. But even if you find yourself saying, this Jesus thing's crazy, I don't believe any of it. Well, then I'll beat you to the punch. It's my goal to win you over so that you would see how gracious, how good and merciful Jesus is. That God is a loving king that doesn't want to destroy his people, but God is a king who wants to die in the place of his people. And I want that to change you so much that you begin to follow Jesus faithfully with the rest of your life because it's worth it. I am going to persuade you of this. And Christians who follow Jesus will also persuade you of this. It's kind of what we do. It's kind of a thing that Jesus told his followers to do. Hey, go, not only following me, but bringing other people along. And it seems that there are two things preventing this from happening. And the first one is that there's something more valuable in the sight of people. And the second one, is that we miss Jesus' power and authority. So let's start walking through this, beginning in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Just really briefly, that phrase, while they were going, it seems that as Jesus had told his people, go to Galilee, I'm going to meet you there, they were responding obediently. And Matthew wants us to know they obediently went. They were going. But he also kind of does a, uh, a little twist of plot here. It gives you kind of a stop and a break and maybe a Quentin Tarantino view of something else going on. Meanwhile, as they were going, some other people were going too. It says that the guard, the guards that were posted outside of Jesus' tomb to keep Jesus and his body from being stolen by his disciples by the high priests, went to the city, and then they told the chief priests that had put them up to this and, and gotten Pilate to sign off on it. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, according to verse 12, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, hey, tell all the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. So Matthew turns away from the joy and obedience of the, father, of the followers of Jesus and he turns our attention toward the response of others. The response of people that were not followers of Jesus. It turns us to the problem that faces everyone else who's not a follower of Jesus. And then it seems like a difficult thing for these people to come to grips with what they've experienced. Namely, that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, but he's somewhere else. Simultaneously, as those people went, there was also a plot working against what they meant to accomplish. Now, this is really interesting um, because it's, it's highly ironic. I don't know if you caught that, but just a few verses earlier, we saw the chief priests go to uh, the head man in charge over this particular area, Pilate, and he says, hey, they said, Pilate, help us put guards outside of the tomb so that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, won't come and steal Jesus' body. And then for them, the first mistake would be even not as near as bad as the next mistake, because then everyone, if we let them steal Jesus' body, will believe that what Jesus had said about his life, that he will come back from the dead. And it's highly ironic. A few verses earlier, they were like, whatever you do, don't let the disciples steal Jesus' body so that everyone will think that Jesus is alive. And then a few verses later, did you catch that? He's like, oh, by the way, tell everyone that his disciples came and stole the body. And the thing that they wanted to stop more than anything else, they apparently now are investing to proliferate themselves. This is not uncommon. This is this fear that they had of people kind of being suspected of not being dead. This is not uncommon. It's not even uncommon for us. This happens all the time. Right? There's, there's myth, you can kind of look this up in, in ancient literature of people who like, we think they died, but we're not sure. And there's no evidence of it. Some people still, um, after Napoleon, the great emperor and the great military leader, when he died, some people believe that he was still actually walking around. And there's kind of spurious literature devoted to, I saw Napoleon. Now we've seen this in, for I won't say in my lifetime, but I'll say collectively our lifetime. It's a guy by the name of Elvis. Right? And there's some people we're thoroughly convinced that this Elvis guy is not dead. Thoroughly convinced. Now, it hasn't gained any traction. People who say they've seen Elvis and believe that he's still alive are kind of like, eh, okay, maybe not. But it just, it's just common. People who make a great impact and kind of imply that there's something better or greater about them tend to have a following of skeptics around them. Princess Diana. Some people still believe there's, where, what happened? She died in a tunnel. Maybe she's still alive. My lifetime, Tupac. I don't know if this is a big deal for you. He kind of said some stuff that was really interesting. Um, he said he was just a prominent rapper in the 90s, uh, fairly influential on me, not in a good way, but, you know. He said some stuff that was kind of important, right? I mean, I don't know if you remember this. I don't want to show too many, too many cards here, but, like, I heard a rumor I died, murdered in cold blood, dramatized, anyone, Right? I mean, I could be wrong. Tell mama, don't cry, your baby boy in heaven up and good. Tell my boys, there's no hoods in heaven, right? I mean, kind of did a thing this, all right? 
I had to like clear out some expletives in my own head to even tell that to you. But as a result of saying some things that were somewhat ominous about his death, after he died, there's kind of a sense in which maybe he's still alive. Maybe it had to do with the fact that his record label started just spilling out all of his records after he was di- after he'd already died posthumously. But this is common. This is not uncommon. This is a thing. There's something in us that kind of wants to believe that these people, even though they have died, there's something in us that we want to believe that they're special and that they're greater than us. And the thing that will one day take us away from this earth and put us in a hole six feet under doesn't apply to them. And we latch on to those things. Unfortunately, it just doesn't happen very successfully. And so these high priests were right to suspect this. They were right to invest accordingly, knowing that if if word got out that Jesus' body was gone, oh man, we're going to have to tell everybody Jesus is actually dead, we killed him. But something crazy happened. The people who watched Jesus die, I mean painfully, over the course of hours, people who watched him die were the first people who went out saying that he was still alive. I mean, if you wanted to get a a real large group of people to get together and tell you that Tupac is still alive, good luck. There's just not a lot. And yet, if you want to get a lot of people together and talk about how Jesus is still alive, even 2,000 years later, well, then walk around the city. Because in houses and buildings and Churches and basilicas and gathering places all around the city, people are getting together talking about this thing. They were right to be afraid. They were right to suspect that something might go the other way. And they invested accordingly. It's kind of interesting. I I don't know. um, The circumstantial evidence that is overwhelming to me, that I think is kind of interesting here, that, that makes me think that this particular plot is weird, um, basically, the argument that they said to make is that the disciples came in and they stole the body, and it says that Jews still believe this to this day, according to Matthew. This would probably apply to anyone. Some people still believe to this day Jesus is not alive. You may be in this room thinking, Jesus is not alive. He died. This, this, is, this is just like Elvis. This is not real. He's not really alive. You may be in this company. But the alternate explanation is really weird that, that the disciples stole the body i mean come on a few days before these were the disciples that when they had an opportunity to stand up for their friend who they'd followed for years coward the boldest the the most dominant personality in the whole bunch peter said i don't even know the guy and they were like no you were with him in galilee you sound like a galilean you knew him and he's like absolutely not and they're like no 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 you really know him and then he says blankety blankety blank i do not know the guy just as jesus predicted And the rest of the disciples cowered. The only people it sounds like, according to most of the accounts in the Gospels, that were brave enough to be close to Jesus as he was hanging on the cross were his mom, Mary Magdalene, maybe the other Mary and a couple other people, and John shows up later. The rest of them, it tells us, were hiding, afraid of the authorities in a house. So here's an amazing thing, circumstantial evidence to me for Jesus being alive. You're telling me that the guys who were scared to death one minute of being affiliated with Jesus all of a sudden went SEAL Team 6 against a couple of Roman soldiers, somehow, you know, I don't know, incapacitated him, then managed to roll the stone away? 
I mean, it, I, I could be wrong. But what, there's a, a drastic change in personality in this, in this particular case. They're scared to death. They're scared of their own shadows. They're scared for their own lives. And then they're going to go, oh no, let's go kill some Roman soldiers. It's a little bit of a turn. And that's the story that's told here. And the opportunity to, to tell the truth and to say what really happened instead of some of the conjured up ideas that this council particularly came up with by the soldiers is completely avoided. Did you catch that? They had an opportunity. The, the soldiers has, had the ability to tell their story of what happened. And the word here in verse 12, it says that they gave the council a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. It's a tricky word uh, used here. This sufficient, nun, this sufficient sum, this ekanos, it means adequate or enough or considerable or much. But it's mostly used for the word enough. Large and enough. And you see the first particular obstacle to the testimony that Jesus is alive and well. As if for some people, to encounter that Jesus is alive and to keep it a secret is because there is a price that they are not willing to pay. Jesus is alive. It's changed everything. It changes the way we tell time. It's 2015. Why? It's 2015 years since this thing that really messed up the world and turned it upside down. It changed everything. But for some, it is more profitable to remain silent. It is more profitable to keep it a secret. It says that they gave a sufficient sum. Jesus is one guy who is never shy about money. He talks about money on a regular basis. Not that money has any inherent good or evil quality, but that money is so honest. It's brutally honest. It tells you what you value. You can say what you love all you want. You can tell me what you value, but if I look at your bank account, I'll see what you really value. You can sit there and say what you love and how much you care about this or that, but if you look at someone's bank account, money does not lie. It tells us what we really value. It tells us what's really important. That doesn't make money evil. That just makes your heart and your own internal motivations painfully obvious with respect to money. And for these people, it's exactly true. They would rather, instead of stirring up trouble, take a sufficient sum of money. Rather than tell people, make no mistake about it, it would have cost them greatly. Because then they would have had to admit that they failed to guard the tomb. And yet instead of telling people that they failed to guard the tomb because angel, an angel looked like lightning came and blinded them and made them afraid, they were more comfortable with saying that they had somehow been hijacked by the disciples. Because the cost of telling the truth, of telling of the miraculous thing that God had done, is too high. This is not uncommon. Jesus addresses this. He knows that our entire motivation is based on what we think is profitable and advantageous for us. But he challenges us. You see this in Matthew chapter 16. He challenges his disciples. He said, look, what does it profit a person? What gain is it for a person to gain the whole world, to gain the world's worth and wealth, but to lose our soul? Mark chapter 10, I love this. 
Peter says to Jesus, in case you're on the fence and you're wondering, well, what's this price that Jesus is calling us to pay to follow and to share? Peter says, look, we've left everything when we followed you. But in the same way that money reveals what we really value, in the same way that what we really believe can be shown measurably just like these particular soldiers showed what they really valued and what they really cared about by the price that they were willing to take. Peter says, we've followed you and we've left everything. And Jesus encourages you and me and hopefully even these soldiers. And he says in Mark 10, 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands even with persecutions and in the age to come then eternal life because many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first and jesus encourages you yes there is a price that you might have to pay for identifying publicly and boldly with jesus and jesus is saying that price is a bargain so for these particular soldiers, that price would have meant that maybe they would have lost their job. Maybe they would have lost their lives. Maybe. Maybe they just didn't want to stir up trouble. Maybe they were intimidated by someone. Maybe someone was holding them hostage. But Matthew wants you to know that there was a price that was paid to buy these people's silence. There was a gag order put out that kept these guys silent. And I hope maybe as you hear that, you begin to sympathize with it. Jesus is real. Jesus has done something. And there's compelling, life-changing evidence for it. God is doing something in Jesus that can't be explained. And yet for a lot of us, that's a private, personal thing that we don't want to tell or share with anyone. And if we were honest, it's because we are not willing to forfeit the the sum of money that was sufficient. The value that was sufficient. This treasure that seems sufficient to keep us quiet. So I would ask you this, what, are, what is it? What is it that's keeping you from telling and making your life a billboard for this Jesus? Is there something right now more valuable in your life than making much of Jesus? Jesus. Jesus has laid down His life for you and for me to take our place, to bring us along in this mission of glorifying God forever and ever amongst the nations. But is there something that seems bigger and more important and more valuable in your life that's keeping you from participating in that? To use Matthew's words, has someone bought you off? Has someone paid you a sufficient sum to keep you quiet? Is someone holding your testimony of transformation hostage? If so, you're in good company. This is the story. This is the challenge. This is the price that Jesus lays out for us that we might have to pay for to follow him. But be encouraged. They're not the only people. This is not the story. This is not the only story. The people that responded to Jesus. So Jesus is alive. And that's good news for everyone who might hear it. But the hindrance to getting that word out is either that there's something more profitable than sharing it, or that we miss out on Jesus' authority. So verse 16, the second one here. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, they worshipped him. But some hesitated, they doubted. 
And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives a command based on his authority over all things. His final authority over everything. And therefore, since he has authority over all things, he has authority over all people. He has authority over your life and mine. And the second challenge, it seems, that Matthew wants to imply here is either that there's something more valuable than living for Jesus or something holding us back that seems more important and more profitable than living for Jesus and making much of him, but also it seems that there are hindrances to us seeing how powerful and great and majestic he really is. He's a good king. He's a merciful king. He lays down his life for his people. He bears their punishment. He doesn't send his people into battle so that they would die for his kingdom. He runs first to die so that no one else in his kingdom would die. And Since he has now triumphed over the one last thing that you and I as human beings have held over our heads, that is death, we know that he has greater power than any of us can imagine. And the fact that he's alive isn't just a rumor like Elvis or Tupac or Napoleon, Jim Morrison. The list goes on. People suspected of maybe not actually dying because they're special. This Jesus really is. And Jesus has demonstrated his power in an amazing way. He has done in this amazing gift of the incarnation what God seemingly would find impossible to do, and that is to die. Jesus, as God, did the one thing that is impossible for God to do, and that is die, because God is eternal and infinite, and yet in the form of Jesus, he dies. But he also does the one thing that people, men, women cannot do, and that is not die. And Jesus, in a miraculous fashion, demonstrates his power by illustrating the power of God to to pour out himself that he would die on the cross in our place. And yet at the same time, show us the power of the resurrection so that those of us who know we're going to die know that Jesus, by his power, shares the one gift that you and I don't have, and that's not die. It's an amazing transaction, and it's the reason that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. If you want to challenge him on this, if you find yourself having reservations, like, I don't know if Jesus is really that great, well, then the best way to prove it is don't die, and we'll see what happens in 2,000 years about you. And if you'd like to prove this one wrong, you're invited to take the challenge. Live forever. Get a following. Change the world. Save the world. And in 2,000 years, you'll know what happened. And you're right. But until then, there's only one. There's only one. There's only one that's alive. There's only one that is alive and changing the nations. And that is Jesus. And we know that he has power. So therefore, we listen. We go and we tell. Notice the transition here. He says, go. And he seems to put no limits on the place to which they are to go. He says, go and then make disciples of the nations. So first about the disciples. We hinted at this to begin with. There's an amazing thing that you and I have been called to do. And it's not just to enter into a school of thought, but it's to follow into the footsteps of Jesus. 
This is an amazing thing. We, we, in our kind of Western mindset, think of joining or leaving things with respect to institutions much like high school or college. You kind of enroll, pay your dues, and you walk out with a qualification. You sit under a system, you sit under a school of thought, you sit under the teaching of professors, you sit under theories, and you sit under ideas for a long enough period of time that you walk away with enough knowledge to put it to use. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus doesn't invite you to simply enroll in his institution and get a degree. The, the only equivalent here would be instead of going to college and learning from professors, would be instead to like be adopted by a professor, to move in with a professor, and to learn from him, to learn his ways and his methods, and to teach along with him, to both learn from the professor, but also to teach those that the professor is teaching. Because we're called here to discipleship, to apprenticeship, to a followership, to walking in Jesus' footsteps. Not simply accumulating knowledge, but to walk in his footsteps and to do the same things that Jesus did. Where there is hurt, Jesus goes to heal. And we as disciples take Jesus to heal. We take Jesus to encourage. We take Jesus and his good news of his ministry of reconciliation, and we pass it on to those of us around us that are broken. We don't just sit under his teaching hoping that one day we'll be smart enough. The light bulb will finally go on and we'll finally get it. Jesus pulls us alongside and says, no, do this with me. Did did you catch that? I will be with you even to the end. There is no school teacher. There is no professor. There is no knowledgeable sage or enlightened fellow in the world who makes that promise. Again, go hang out with a, maybe a former professor or former teacher of yours. See how long it takes to creep them out. Not Jesus. Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm going to give you what you need. It's going to be sufficient. Not because you're special, but because I am with you. And we're invited to be a part of this. Not just because Jesus wants to impart to us some wisdom that might change what we think, but it's going to change our lives when we take on his identity. Eventually, the apprentice plumber, at some point, not by his own merit, but by his experience in walking along his master, becomes an actual plumber. So this is the encouragement I have to you. When Jesus says, be a disciple and make a disciple, he's challenging you not to be smarter than the people around you because from where you're sitting, that may not seem like a big deal, but instead he's challenging you and me to walk in his footsteps forever and ever. And it may seem like there are things more profitable than this, but there is something amazing that takes place when we participate in this and jump in with him and walk in his footsteps. We've been given this good news, this good news that Jesus has done something for us that gives us life forever and ever. And we are no longer in a place where we can keep it a secret. Unless we are holding on to a sufficient sum that seems more valuable, or unless we fail to recognize that Jesus is powerful and has authority over all things, this is the thing that you and I have been placed in this city and this place to accomplish. To follow Jesus in such a way that others come along with us. So this means that I actively, as best I can, try to convince you to follow Jesus with me. I'm not ashamed of that. 
We're not soft-selling something here. We're like, hey, come hang out, and then baiting and switching, and then saying, oh, by the way, you need to follow Jesus. Instead, this is, this is the thing that we're bold, and we have to win the right to be heard when we say this, but this is what we do. My favorite illustration of this is by um, kind of a, a, a prominent atheist. If you are aware of the entertainer's pen and teller, Gillette Penn is one of them, and, and he said something that blew up the internet about eight years ago, and it was really profound, and he said that he had a friend that was a Christian. And even though Penn is not, or Gillette Penn is not at all, um, or excuse me, Penn Gillette is not at all a Christian, he said something that was powerful about his Christian friend. His Christian friend was compelling him to believe in Jesus so that he would not feel the wrath of God and the justice of God for eternity, but then he might spend eternity in God's presence with Jesus in heaven. And he said of his friend that any Christian that didn't tell him about that must hate him. Because if you have the good news that gives new life and you don't tell someone, how much do you have to hate them? How much must you, how much must you hate them to keep it from them? How much would you have to hate me if I was going to walk into oncoming traffic? How much would you have to hate me for you to sit by quietly and not warn me? And so this gift that God has given us is, is a gift of love. Someone following Jesus, this may be your story, but if not, then it could be. Someone following Jesus, a disciple, invited me to follow Jesus with them. It's that simple. Evangelism is a fancy word we use, but he invited me to trust when Jesus is done and to follow him accordingly. And now that following Jesus with all my life has given me a new life, I am obediently inviting you to join me as well. Because what he offers is better than anything we can imagine. And to keep that a secret would be the greatest act of hate and contempt that I could show you. To not tell you about the joy that God has born in me by coming to life, not only 2,000 years ago, but coming to life in my own heart and life day by day, would be to withhold the freedom and joy that could change your life. And to keep it a secret from you would be the greatest act of hate that we can imagine. So we tell. It says we teach also people to observe all that Jesus has commanded you. This is related to his authority, I think. Again, this really is better to do things Jesus' way than our own way. Doing things your own way seems to only get into a cycle of trouble. And Jesus offers a way out, a way that brings in joy. Matthew wants you to know that it wasn't just the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection that changed the world. It was buy-in. People who knew the good news of Jesus didn't just know it objectively. It wasn't just a cognitive experience. They bought into it. And they were willing to lay down their lives for it. Yes, there was doubts. Of course there's doubts. Anytime Jesus calls you to be a part of something that's confounding the imagination, imagination and defies our understanding, there's going to be some concerns. There's going to be reservations. And yet, despite that, Jesus calls us to buy in, to take all of our chips and push them to the middle of the table. Because it isn't only that the followers of Jesus see Jesus alive, it's also that they're willing to make the sacrifice, to say no to the sufficient sum that the world offers you and me, and to say yes to him. So my favorite compelling circumstantial evidence is in this. There's a guy by the name of James. I've shared with this before, but James was the brother of Jesus. Um, 
And in honor of National Sibling Day this last week, if there's anyone um, who could out you for who you really are, it's a sibling who knows all your bad deeds, right? And so if at any given moment I was like, hey, I'm going to live forever, I'm kind of a big deal, don't call me Jonathan anymore, call me the Son of God. Um, the, the leader of the campaign to throw me under the bus would be my brother. And if you went to my brother, and like, hey, really, is he, is he divine? Does he have powers? My brother would be the first one to be like, no. No. Let me sit on him, let me hold him down. You'll see how powerful he is, right? He outweighs me. He's bigger than me. This is what happens. I fight with rage. He fights with strength. So if you want to, you can begin this movement, but the siblings, I think, around us, the people who know us the most closely will probably defy it. That's my case. And one of the most compelling arguments that's made in all of Scripture is James, the brother of Jesus, had an opportunity to recant and to spill all the beans on his brother and say that his brother was not God, but he knew him from birth, and therefore he must not be God. And instead of doing that, and they offered this James, the brother of Jesus, the opportunity to have life and to survive or recant, they pushed him off the temple, the highest structure that they knew of at the time, because, G- because James would not deny who Jesus was. I don't know how much your brother loves you. My brother would not do that. And they pushed James off of the temple. It didn't kill him, and so they went over there to him, and they bashed him in the head with a club. But that wasn't before he wrote a particular book. He's affiliated with this teaching that is James. as compelling evidence for some people who saw Jesus alive and they were willing to lay down their lives accordingly, so also have we been given that same invitation. And it's worth it. Both the disciples and the guards saw something outstanding, but for the guards, there was a sufficient price to keep it a secret. There were guys just going about their business. And maybe for you and me, that's what we value the most. We just don't want to sacrifice our approval. We don't want to lose friends. We don't want people to think we're crazy. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to mess up business as usual. They valued going about their business more than being a part of what God had invited them to do. So let us be a people. Let us be a people that there is no price that is too great for the good news of Jesus to go out. Let's be a people that acknowledge Jesus in all His splendor, all His glory and His power and His authority. And then let's lead others to follow and to publicly identify with His burial and resurrection. Did you catch that last little bit? As we make disciples, did you catch that? It says they baptize them. Remember this? We have some awesome symbols that we participate in in the life of the Christian, right? We celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus in communion, the Lord's Supper, And in that, we celebrate Jesus' death as a sacrifice on our behalf. But we also celebrate something, baptism, which is a perfect picture of not just the death and the burial, but the resurrection. None of us fear drowning in baptism because we know in our hearts that Jesus will draw us out of the grave just like pastor will draw us out of the water. Let us lead others to follow this Jesus and to publicly identify with his burial and resurrection, that is baptism. For some, there might be something holding you hostage. There's something, there's a barrier. And I would just challenge you, man, you've been bought off. Just like these soldiers, you've been bought off. And I'm telling you, Jesus is offering something more amazing than you could imagine. 
and it's worth it. His ways are better. But then there's some of you that you're convinced there's really something more powerful in this world than Jesus. Maybe it's you. Maybe you think you're in control. I love you, and I love you enough to tell you this. A time is coming in, when, in which that will fall apart. And the good news of Jesus will be waiting for you to tell you that he is with you. He will never abandon you. So let's be a group of people for which there is no price we would not pay to share the love and good news of Jesus. And for which there is no greater authority that we would submit rather than him, such that we will follow him all the days of our life and people will follow us and him in our wake. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for this good news that you've shared with us. We thank you that even though we haven't earned it, God, you have, uh, you have freely given it and purchased it for us in spite of us. God, if there's some of us uh, in this room, maybe there's, man, it just, it just doesn't seem profitable to follow Jesus. It just doesn't seem profitable. It seems like there's, there's anything better in the world than following Jesus. Would in these moments you begin to kind of compel them? Would you just open their hearts to the possibility? They doubt just like the disciples did, but would you compel them? Would you open their hearts that they would see that to follow you, to live your life learning from him, following in his ways, obeying his commands is actually a life that's more valuable. It's a life that's more joyful. There are treasures untold waiting, both in this life and the life to come. Maybe for some of those, we, we know this. We know that Jesus is alive. In our head, we, we have experiences even in our own past where we can see that Jesus has done something. There's a miraculous thing taking place. Uh, but in the meantime, we've just kind of kept it a secret. God, I confess the times in which I don't have the courage to boldly proclaim how good you are and the opportunities that you give me. Would you begin to transform our view of the world? We would realize that there is no greater place to be than at the feet of our Lord Jesus? Would you begin to challenge out our own sense of solitude and silence? Would you begin to bear in us a, a feeling of hospitality and generosity and love that we would look around us and see that there are so many people who lack the joy because they're so far from God? Give us the courage to begin to share that love. Uh, let us no longer see with contentment a world that lives without you, but instead give us a great desire, this great commission, a great goal to see many brought to your Son for your glory. We want to shout that from the rooftops. Give us the courage to do so. In Jesus' name.